Okay, today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35, and uh, also carries on into chapter 10. Um, And Jesus went throughout all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I hope you have your Bibles because we'll be uh, all over in, uh, in Matthew and a couple other places. Again, we go verse by verse, so we're picking some larger chunks these last couple weeks and um, we will uh, be in Matthew just as long, though. So, by way of clarification, we are Restoration Road in every single way except bank account. So don't write checks to Restoration Road yet. Uh, we've had to contact a couple people to say, uh, by the way, it's still Damascus Road Church on our bank account. So we have to, um, I'll let you know when that changes. For right now, it's Damascus Road Church. For those of you who are like, what do you mean? Talk to me after service and I'll explain to you what the whole name change and all that stuff's about. So, we are Restoration Road and our mission is the same mission that we have always had and it is basically to live out um, the Great Commandment as we fulfill the Great Commission. And if you don't know what the Great Commission is, or the Great Commandment for that matter, the Great Commandment is in Matthew 22 and I'll just summarize that one and then I'll read the Great Commission. In Matthew 22, uh, Jesus is approached and asked what the greatest commandment is. He basically says to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And he continues to say the second is pretty darn close, which is to love your neighbor. Supposed to love. And the Great Commission is the last instruction that Jesus gave, really, the commandment he gave to his disciples. And it says this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 to 20. It's the last two verses of the chapter. You go, what is the mission of our church? Here it is. It's to obey Jesus who said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name 
of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the interesting thing about that commandment is he says, go and make disciples. We're like, that's right. And it says, make sure you teach them to obey everything I've said. Guess what? Including that command. So that's what we're talking about today. Our mission and what we're supposed to do and why God, when He saves somebody, He doesn't just take them, poo, and they're gone. He leaves us here to do something for some amount of time. Some of us have maybe hours. Some have years. Some have decades. But for those who are in Christ, you are here for a purpose. There is something to accomplish, something to do. And so the commitment to this great commission requires a, a certain conviction. And that is that the Great Commission, as Jesus laid out there, can be accomplished and will actually be completed someday. Additionally, it's not yet. It requires that pastors and churches kind of adopt a a particular mentality, and that is that the church is not the end in itself. And what I mean by that is that the church actually is gathered together by God, empowered by God for a particular mission for God. And so the church is the means, the tool to mobilize people for this mission. If you've ever read Ephesians chapter 4, it's a great book basically on the church largely. and on, It's an awesome book, but chapter 4 particularly is about the church in many ways. And it says that that God gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers, all these guys that are part of the church, He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. So pastors and shepherds are given by God not to do all the ministry. We kind of had that mentality, I think, in our culture. Like, well, the pastors will counsel and the pastors will speak the truth and the pastors will go evangelize and the pastors will do a lot of things and they do do a lot of things but the bible says that they're largely responsible to equip the sheep to do ministry the sheep to complete the mission so god saves us by the power of the gospel he wakes people up jesus saves people we don't just choose to be saved When Jesus saves people, He gathers us into what we'll just call a family. We talk about family a lot. Maybe more accurately is to say we're a family of families. But God gathers us into a family where we are intended to grow together. In fact, the Bible talks about the purpose of the church as every part of the body. That's the church is working together. It grows together. It learns together. And did you know that Jesus gave like 50 plus one another commands that are difficult to fulfill outside of the church, the people of God, to love one another, confess to one another, serve one another. And so people say like, well, I I can have my Jesus, but I don't necessarily need the church. The Bible disagrees with you. Not only do you need the church, the church needs you. We're in this together. So we're this family that's brought together. And sometimes what happens is churches made the mistake of just going, we're just family. All right, let's huddle together away from the world in our little Christian club med that's protected from sin. 
And you can find a number of churches in Snohomish that are dead and dying because they decided to just be family. And they forgot their mission. Because God gathers us together as a family, and then guess what? He sends us out as a team. He sends us out on mission to proclaim all that He has done through Jesus Christ to bring us back to Himself and to bring us into His family. We're sent on mission into the world. And so, if we're going to be a church, we have to gather, we have to love one another, we have to serve one another, we have to grow together, we have to admonish one another, we have to encourage one another. All these things happen. But we don't just gather, we scatter and we go. And this is what this text is about today. Verse 35, which is the first verse that Aaron read, is a repeat of the verse that came right before the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount was chapters 5-7, through seven, right? And it's pretty much an rep, exact replica of that verse. And what the verse does in verse 35 is basically, it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the Gospel, and healing every disease and affliction. So, so those words pretty much describe Jesus' ministry. It describes what Jesus did prior to the cross. What He intended to do. He was walking around, going places. So He was moving he was teaching. He was preaching. So those seemed to be different, and he was healing. That's what Jesus did. Walked around, taught, preached, healed. And up to this point, these 12 disciples, and then others would gather with him. And up at some points, there's 72 of them, and then it kind of shrinks down when Jesus says really offensive things. And, and then he always has his 12. And so up to this point, Jesus has done everything. Disciples really haven't done much. They have, without doubt, become followers of Jesus. They have come to, to place and find their identity in Christ. In other words, their primary identity is that they're followers of Jesus. Now, these guys have jobs. These guys have families. I'm sure these guys have certain things they like to do. Hobbies. But first and foremost, they are disciples. Secondly, they're husbands. Secondly, they're professionals. Secondly, they're fathers. But they are defined by being a follower of Jesus. Would that describe you? I'm not first a pastor and then a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus who happens to be a pastor. I used to be a follower of Jesus who happened to be a teacher. Some of you followers of Jesus happen to work at Boeing. What's first? Some of you would find your identity in, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a mom. That's not first. You're a follower of Jesus first. And that's what these guys are. And for three years, they have been students and servants and roadies for Jesus, setting up his stuff. Getting him a sandwich, and he needs a sandwich. Doing what they're told. Making sure the crowds don't get too close, right? They're like crowd control. And they're learning from Jesus' example. They learn what it be, means to be on mission by watching Jesus. Watching Jesus teach. Listening to Him preach. Watching Him heal. But all they've done is learn about mission, and now they're getting to a place 
where they're going to be on mission. And guess what? That's a lot of us here. You've been following Jesus for a long time and you haven't done squat for Him. I'm glad that you're a follower of Jesus. That's awesome. But He has more for you. It's not enough just to gather. It's not enough just to learn from Jesus. He wants you to go. And this is what He's going to call these guys to do. He basically tells them, no more watching. No more just learning. No, no more just consuming. No more holding your hand. I'm shoving you out. All disciples, all disciples must one day become laborers. There is a season of learning. There's a season of growing. But some of us have been growing and learning too long. We've been in the classroom way too long. We need to get out in the field. And so Jesus is like, boop, here you go. Time to put you in the scary place where you're really going to have to depend on me and not just be comfortable next to me. So Jesus is going to reveal a couple things throughout this text. He's going to reveal that He didn't come to gather admirers or academics. He actually came to make disciples who would work to complete His mission, particularly His way. So the first thing He shows us is the heart of the mission, and then it goes into the power and the people, and, and lastly, the way He does it. So let's start with the heart of the mission, which is, I think, one of the most difficult things for us. In that first passage, Jesus uh, does something that is uh, challenging in order to live out what I'm going to call our sentness, our sentness as a people, that we are on mission. We talk about being a missional church and being on mission. That's what really we're talking about, that we are sent, that we are actually in a foreign place, that we have something to do. In order to be a sent people, you have to recognize there's actually a need there. That there are people to actually rescue or be rescued. That there's a war going on. We need to see the world the way Jesus does. It says that Jesus saw the crowds. He says He saw the crowds and He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus loves people. I love people sometimes. And I know you're the same with me. People are Difficult to love. I'm difficult to love. You're difficult to love. Jesus loved difficult people. He was really good at it. In fact, He was perfect. When He looks out among the crowd, unlike us, maybe I'll just say me to be safe, He doesn't get disgusted by what He sees. He has compassion. It's difficult for us, especially in a world that's very connected through cyberspace and we can see news and what's happening everywhere all the time. And It's very easy for us to look out in the world and not be able to see past the brokenness. Not see past the rebellion and the stuff that just disgusts us. And it's because it's loud, it's repulsive, it's ubiquitous, which means it's everywhere all the time. But Jesus looks out on the crowds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people that are there that are sick, many that have put themselves into bad situations, and he could just be like, well, if you wouldn't have done this, it wouldn't have never happened, right? 
But he looks out and instead, he sees their helplessness before he sees their sinfulness. And I know for you and I, I'm a very critical person. Let's be honest, right? I'm a, I'm a people watcher. Okay, Maybe you're a people watcher, sit in restaurants, watch people, eavesdrop on conversations. I'm sure you don't do that. I do it all the time. So much so my wife would be like, hey, you know, hello, we have a family here. I know, but you're not going to believe what's going on over here. Like, it's amazing. But most of the time I'm looking out there with a critical eye. I'm not looking out to find stuff that's like really wonderful, right? And so whether it be a TV show, whether it be a, a person walking down the street, my tendency, my default, I say this as a confession, is, is to be critical. Look at that freak show, right? What is wrong with him? Jesus sees helplessness before he sees sinfulness and dirt and grime. He was moved because he saw them as a people who harassed, saw them as helpless, saw them as lost. They were desperate. They were suffering without any understanding of what was going on. He had compassion on them. He didn't sit back in pride and go, mm-hmm, well, if you would have just obeyed, that's my default. Maybe it's yours. And some people, I believe, are helpless and harassed because they believe the lies of the world and they follow them. And God has said, it's not going to end up well and it doesn't end up well. But let's be honest. And Jesus has condemned teachers and religious teachers more than anybody. A lot of people are helpless and hopeless, and harassed because they followed bad teaching. They followed bad pastors. It's a lot of them to choose from. And so Jesus sees that there's all kinds of sheep that are lost. But I think the key is that He sees them. See, many of us don't have a love for people because we're not close enough to look at dirty people. We're not close enough to see the people, and I say dirty, I mean those people that we would deem unclean. You have your list. We all have one. Maybe it's uneducated people. Maybe it's people of a different political persuasion. Maybe it's people that are uneducated. Maybe it's people that aren't wealthy. Maybe it's people just dressed differently than you. Maybe it's people that indulge in a particular sin that you find particularly disgusting. And you find it so hard to love that person. And so you never ever get close enough to see them. I don't want to be near them. And then if you do see them, all you have is criticism, right? Whether it be verbal or in your mind. If that's your tendency, if your tendency is to look at people and criticism comes out first, be careful because I fear you don't have a heart of Christ. Which is what we're talking about. See, we're never aware, I think, really of needs when we don't see them. Most of us avoid the lepers and the paralyzed and the blind, figuratively speaking, and literally. Though there are a lot of unclean people in the world, unclean, quote-unquote, we only hang out with the clean ones. Ones that are approved in our world. 
our primary motivation for mission, why we go out, why we tell people about Jesus, must be a love for people, not just a hatred of sin. There's a lot of sin to hate, don't get me wrong. Sin is worthy to be hated, but compassion and hope is infinitely more powerful than disgust. Compassion and hope is way more powerful than disgust or disdain or admonishment and rebuke. But it seems like that's all we, maybe that's the go-to mode for us. Without compromising God's truth, Jesus is and we must be compassionate before condemning. We must be compassionate before condemning. That's the, the foundation of mission. The foundation of us going is the heart of Christ, which is a love for people. And if you don't have a love for people, you need to spend more time with Jesus and recognize how ugly, dirty, sinful, unclean, broken, rebellious you are and how much He loved you. That's what will give you a love for people. You don't have a love for people because you don't recognize how unlovable you are and how much Jesus loved you. Heart of mission. The foundation of mission is a heart of Christ. A love for people. Why do we plant churches? Why do we make disciples? Why do we do any kind of ministry? A love for people to the glory of God. That's first. But then he moves on. And Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So, the Pharisees saw the common people as basically a worthless field to be burned. Right? The religious guys are like, that's yucky. Tax collectors, they're horrible. Just burn them up, get rid of them. And Jesus sees a harvest to be reaped. Jesus looks out and He says though something interesting. He says this harvest is huge. It's like gigantic, humongo, jumbo, and there's not enough people. We don't have enough people out there. The harvest is ready, right? The crops are there to be taken. I just need people to go pick them. But the instruction He gives is kind of interesting. It's challenging to me. Maybe it is to you. Because He reveals that the solution doesn't ultimately rest with me or you, but with God. Like we're usually told, like just work a little harder, just do some things, and this will grow. This will be successful. This is how this person will be saved. This is what, whatever. It's very self-reliant. And Jesus tells his disciples the very opposite. He says that their task, as he sees this huge harvest with all these people, he says, your first task is prayer. You got to pray. Verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly. Right. Look how big the harvest is. There's not enough people. Therefore, pray. In fact, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, as a pastor, let me just... Okay, we planted uh, well three churches, but this church... And it's really easy to get confused as to what the most important aspect of mission is. What I mean is, the thing... That like is key. The, the thing that like this will make it successful. If I were to ask you what what's a, what's going to make a, a church plant successful, a new church successful, you probably have your answers. Good preaching. Oh, it's got to have good preaching. Well, it will we'll just die. Good music. Well, if it doesn't have good music, I'm not staying there. Nice building. 
good kids ministry, effective branding. I mean, it's got to have a neat name, otherwise it's not going to work. Some program. What's it got to have? What's the key? We, we would easily, I think, be able to go into a church and go, this is what it doesn't have, and this is why it's not going to succeed. Jesus says the key is prayer. It's prayer. That's the key to mission. The book of Acts is a record of the church being empowered by the Spirit of God to fulfill the Great Commission. And it starts with prayer, and it gets launched with prayer, and they wait to get empowered by prayer. You see them praying constantly. Every time something happens, they're like, they gather together and pray. They gather together and pray. And I'm convinced, this is not a condemnation on you, it's a condemnation on church culture. If I called a prayer meeting, maybe a tenth of you would show up. And you'd go, well, most people say, I don't have time. Most people say, well, that is kind of like 1850-ish, isn't it? Like, they used to do that stuff. And I'll be honest, I would be reluctant to call it just because I'm part of that same, I was raised in that same culture. I wonder sometimes if all those churches in history called prayer meetings because Jesus said the key is prayer. Where there is little prayer, I think it's fair to say there's going to be very little mission. There might be some cool stuff going on, but it may not be the mission that Jesus actually planned. We want to see, I want to see, more disciples made and more churches planted. Why? Because Jesus said that's what you're supposed to do. That's the Great Commission. What are you talking about? Go make disciples and baptize them, which means they're going to be coming into churches. And if I want to figure out if the disciples understood or how they understood exactly what Jesus meant, I read the book of Acts. And what did they do? Made disciples and planted churches. That hasn't changed. So if we want to do that, we have to pray. We have to pray for disciples to be made. When's the last time you prayed for someone's salvation? Prayed for the empty seats next to you that they will be filled with people who do not believe, who would believe, and then who would go on mission. We must pray. It's the best program we have. We're to pray for the glory of God. We're to pray for the power of the Spirit. We're to pray for the direction of the Spirit. We're to pray for the confession of sin. We're to pray for the redemption and blessing of our city. We're to pray for protection against the enemy. We're to pray for the conversion of the lost. We're to pray. We don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. We don't pray enough. Jesus says, if you don't have prayer as part of your mission, you will not succeed. There will be a huge harvest and you won't be able to take it for Him. So we're to pray before we plan our mission. We're to pray for wisdom as we plan. And we are to pray for the power to complete our mission. Their first task was to pray. So our job is to ask God to recruit people. Our job is to ask God to equip people. Our job is to ask God to send people. And the temptation, we were talking about this as elders prior to me preaching this, of like the temptation is to go, all right, you guys, we need more people in the fields. we got lots of needs down in the kids' ministry. Why aren't you guys serving? Right? Take this scripture and kind of like, we twist it a little bit. We have a lot of work and no laborers. But this isn't where the field is. 
We're not petitioning God to bring more laborers into the church, but to send them from here into the fields. That's what we're praying for. I would love to have more laborers in the church, but I'd rather be known as a church that's sent. People come, they're equipped, they're sent. Not everyone is sent to Ethiopia. Some of you are just sent to Boeing. Some are sent into your homes where some of your family members don't believe. Some of you are sent into the coffee shops where you work or the communities where you interact. I do believe every Christian needs a farmhouse, right? Here's our farmhouse. Farmhouse to rest. The book of Revelation, Jesus says like, condemning the church of Laodicea, you're neither hot nor cold, right? we always like, oh, being cold is bad. No, cold is refreshing. We need a church that's hot for mission and cold and refreshing, a place to rest and be encouraged. you got to have both. So we need a farmhouse to rest in, to get out of the sun, to get out of the field, but we all need a field. And we all got to go into that field and do some work. We need to pray for more people to go into the fields, and I think perhaps we need to pray for more people's eyes to be open to see the fields that they're already in. Where's the farmhouse that we're sent from? Where's the field we're sent to? Period. you got to have both. So that's the power of mission, prayer. But then he goes into the most comforting part, because I'm convinced that most of us even if we have an inkling to go, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to adopt a mentality as a sent person, as an ambassador, I'm going to go and be bold for Jesus, you're scared to death. You feel unworthy, you feel ill-equipped, you feel incompetent, I say, yes, 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 welcome to my world, planting a church. Okay? You really think I woke up one day like, you know what, I'm just going to rock. I woke up like, oh my Lord, what are we going to do? Okay, Jesus, you go. You're not called because you're equipped. God calls the he equips the called. He'll give you what you need. Remember I'm talking to Moses? I can't talk. You want me to go back to Egypt? He's like, who made the tongue? Prayer's the beginning, it's not the end. He wants us to go. And so he calls his disciples together. Right after he said, there's all kinds of laborers. Pray, guys. Now come in here. He gathers together. It says that he gave his 12 disciples authority over unclean spirits and cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. And then he names the 12. I think many of us have abdicated our responsibility to be a, a sent people to pastors and missionaries and other professional super-Christians that we would call them, right? These guys weren't being paid squat. And they were a ragamuffin group of weirdos. Okay? And this should bring comfort to you. Okay? My, my hope is to show you how silly these guys were and what God did through them to give you some comfort and confidence of what God can do through our own foolishness and through our own weakness and through our own histories that are just as broken. But the first thing we see that is he sends a family. He's not sending out Rambo and some kind of rogue individual. 
He doesn't send people out alone. He sends them out together. He has a small band of brothers who, who end up becoming this team of missionaries and they know each other and they love each other and they serve together and they laugh together and they know each other's weird quirks. That's what the church is supposed to be. One of the reasons why we continue to plant churches is because we want to maintain some sense of smallness to the extent where we can know each other. And we know each other's quirks and we know each other's strengths and we together do some amazing things for God. But like any family, these guys aren't just like, a hey, we're going to do it, rah, 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 let's go, right? They're organized. They're actually organized. There's leadership, there's structure. If you look at the list, I don't have time to go into it all now, but the, the lists in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then Acts, they all are generally the same. They always start with Peter, they always end with Judas, and they generally have the same kind of groupings, particularly three groupings of four. So it kind of looks like, um, was it Peter and I think Philip and James of Alphaeus, son of Alphaeus? They're kind of the lead dudes for these groups. So like it's organized, not just like, let's just go tell people about Jesus, right? There's, a, there's organization to it. There's planning to it. But they're going together. We see later Mark, they're sent two by two. We see brothers going out together. We see good friends going together. Always wondering who got stuck with Judas, right? At the time, they probably thought, hey, I got the money man with me, so that's cool. But a family, right? Sends a family. But what kind of family is it? Okay, well, it's a family. They know each other like family does. But man, it's a diverse family. They're all different. Like you got fishermen, like just blue-collar fishermen, whatever, and you got tax collectors. You got, it says, uh, a political zealot, Simon the Zealot. So like a tax collector and a zealot, it's like a conservative liberal, like they hate each other. And he brings these guys together, Matthew the conservative collaborator and, and Simon like the freedom fighter who normally would probably stab Matthew in the back if he had the chance, but they're brothers. So we're different. It's interesting, like people assume, I think when you come into church, like okay, i got to start being a church person. No, I want you to be a you follower of Jesus and who you are and take everything that you are, every, every skill and talent and personality trait and okay, we're, we're weird together. Let's go. That's what the diversity of the body is. We're different. We don't want you to change who you are, but to be who you are in Christ and then combine and work together. So we're going to be diverse. These guys are diverse. They're different. It's not like they, you know, skipped into towns together. I'm sure they had their conflicts and their tensions. And these guys, not only diverse, they were super dysfunctional. Okay? They were super dysfunctional. They were real people. That's what I mean by saying dysfunctional. They were real. They weren't like the holiest guys around. These are the guys, James and John, brothers, right? Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. Okay? That's just a cool name. Jesus is really creative. But the reason they got that name, they went into a Samaritan village and the village wouldn't receive them. And they came back and they're like, yeah, Jesus, if you want, we'll call fire down from heaven on them. He's like, chill out, okay? Sons of thunder. Okay? They're weird. They're zealous. Peter does all kinds of dumb things. Like, at one point, Jesus is talking to him and says, like, do you know who I am? He's like, yes, you are the Son of God. He's like, God has revealed this to you. 
I'm going to go die. He's like, what? You are not going to die, Jesus. It's like, get behind me, Satan. So in like one, set, like one little text here, he's like, you are blessed. God is revealed. You are Satan. Right? All together. Peter's weird. Okay? But all these guys were weird. Listed in there, Matthew, the tax collector. What does he want you to remember? He's got a broken past. He was an extortionist. God uses all kinds, all flavors. The mission is, is played out. The people that, that God uses are sinners saved by grace. People with broken pasts. People with dark stories. People with weird personalities. But these guys go from laborers working for a living to disciples learning from Jesus to now apostles working the fields of salvation. And Jesus gives them authority. And this is so awesome. He's like, you have authority over these unclean spirits to do basically everything I did. I don't... Man, we're a scared people. As Christians, we are spineless. Not realizing that we have been empowered with the authority of Jesus Christ, the King. Like, when you go into a situation, we usually like apologetic about sharing the Gospel. Oh, well, maybe you should consider Jesus. You know? Maybe. If you have time. Right? We're talking about the King who rules. Whether they want to acknowledge His rule or not. He's ruling. And, and living on this mentality that I have not just an, a better idea, a, a nicer philosophy, I have the truth. I have the reality of what this world is all about. I know the King, and I'm empowered by Him to tell you, and just, Bleh! you don't like it? Okay. You don't have to say it mean, or but you can say it with authority. You can say it with certainty. You know the one thing this world needs is certainty. They're offended by certainty. But Jesus gives them certainty. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in control. I'm in charge. I'm ruling. I'm controlling. I'm returning again to judge. You go and tell them. He gives His people authority to act. And He gives that authority to very regular people. Normal guys. He entrusts His mission to real, unique men who probably have absolutely no self-confidence. And there's a verse that I have often shared with the elders to remind them not to be self-confident. By self-confident, I don't mean like, you know, the opposite of like, just, you know, feel weak and hopeless. No, it's just make sure your confidence is in the right spot. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4, it says this, such is the confidence that we have through Christ Jesus toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. God has made us sufficient through Christ. I can't claim anything. I am incompetent, but I am sufficient in Christ. That's, if you only start with, I am incompetent, I have nothing to offer, then you'll have nothing to offer. What if you say, I have nothing to offer that comes from me, but I have something that comes from Jesus Christ. When Peter is first leading the church in the book of Acts, and someone comes to him and says, will you please heal me? Just touch me and be healed. He's like, actually, 
I'm sorry, I think he asked for money. He says, I don't have anything to give you, but what I do have is Jesus. We don't claim anything is coming from ourselves. These guys don't got much to claim. Neither do we. But we do have the authority of Jesus Christ, and this is part of the mission. The people of mission are not the saints, not the perfect people. The people of mission are a family of sinners. A family of sinners. The last part I think is maybe most important. He sends out his 12, right? And he gives them very specific instructions. And we kind of ignore this a little bit, but I think it's important to spend some time on it. He basically tells them the way to do mission. How do we do it? Tells them where to go, tells them what to do, how to do it, and then what happens when it fails. What's the first thing he tells them? He says where to go, right? In chapter 10, gives him instructions in verse 5 there, and then we'll go to the end. He tells them to go to the lost sheep of Israel, which seems kind of exclusive, and it is. But Jesus had said, and he will later say in Matthew 15, he only came for Israel. Now clearly he heals the centurion's servant. There's other aspects. His mission is going to explode into the Gentile world. We know that. That was the promise to Abraham, the Jewish father, that the world will be blessed through his descendants. But it starts through the Jewish people. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah coming to save the Jewish people. He was the promised King and the Savior that fulfilled everything they were looking for. And so, Matthew in particular, because he's writing to Jews, wants to make sure that this is the Messiah. Remember, he came for the Jews, and this is where it starts, but that's not where it ends. But Jesus does focus on the Jews. But I think the interesting thing about it is that he's moving. He says, go, move, act. The word go reminds us that Building this community of believers is not the end in itself. It's a means to the end. It's a means to the end. We're a sent people with something to do. And I think it's also interesting to know that Jesus limited His mission. And I think some of us um, need to narrow our focus a little bit and get really, as we talk about being a sent people in the field that we've been called to, There are fields that you have been called to that others have not. Your family, start with there. You are the only husband, father, mom, wife, whatever in that home. You definitely are one of your fields. I can't be the dad in your home. You can't be the dad in mine. I can't be the employee that works at your job. Only you can. The friends you have, the neighborhood you're in, like all those things, you got to narrow your focus and 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 where where you have been sent. You can't reach everybody. Jesus didn't try to heal and reach everybody. He came specific. I think you need to narrow your focus a little bit. There's some places that you've been called to, and you need to know what field you're in. But it's a field you're moving and, and going into. It's not just sitting and watching it grow. Secondly, it says what to do on mission, right? Well, as I said, he didn't come to gather admirers or academics. He didn't come to to make fans. He came to make disciples who would complete his mission. And what's his mission? What does he tell them to do? He says, go and preach. Go and preach. Go and... You heard the phrase, you know what? Go and preach the Gospel and occasionally use words. You know what that's called? Okay, you can fill in the blank. 
Okay? Well-intended, dumb. Why? Because unbiblical. It says that salvation comes from hearing. And that by the Word of God. Jesus was a preacher. So we preach. We open our mouth and we say, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for your sins. You preach the Gospel. I don't know the Gospel. Well, good thing you got a Bible. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, we put them down the back shelf. So you don't have an excuse. Take one on the way out. Verse 15, I'm sorry, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. I forgot the Gospel. What is the Gospel? The Gospel isn't simply be good. That's not it at all. Okay? The Gospel isn't Jesus loves you. That's a little bit of it. This is the Gospel. Paul lays it out. Verse 1, Now remind you, brothers, of the Gospel. Fantastic! He's going to remind us of the Gospel, and I'm going to remind you. The Gospel I preached to you, which you received, and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as first importance what I received. Okay, here it comes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and all the apostles. Last of all, as to one of timely born, He appeared to me. What's the Gospel? Jesus Christ dying in your place for your sins what? I'm a sinner? Yes. You're in rebellion against God. That's where all your problems come from. Your identity is being found in something else entirely and not Jesus. And Jesus came to pay the debt and guilt that you owed for your rebellion and to give you new life and He proved He was God and He proved He could do it by rising from the dead. That's the Gospel. And we're called to preach. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus told His disciples to, to do. We are to call people to repent and believe. Turn from sin. Stop loving sin. Love Jesus. You don't have to have every answer. You don't have to know every verse. All you need to ask is one question. And I did this with my road group and it was awesome. I dare you. I dare you. Triple dog dare you. Boom. Highest level right there. Okay. I dare you. Ask the people you interact with. The neighbors your family members, your friends, through Facebook, because I know you're on it, through email, in person, on the phone, do you know Jesus? Not do you know about Jesus. Everyone knows about Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you want to know Him? I was at a pub with a couple guys, and I was on this kick of asking people. Every My waitress came up and she said, I said, I got a weird question for you. She's like, what? Do you know Jesus? She's like, uh, no, no. And then she says something else, and it took me back because I never had anyone ever say emphatically no. I was like, whoa. And it was a miss for me because I basically, I think I later told her, like, if you want to know, I'm right here, we could talk about it. But I just wish I would ask the second question. Do you want to know? Do you want to know? I dare you just to ask. He wants us to preach. But that's not the only thing he told them to do. He told them to heal. 
And I don't think that's a call for us to like, do I have the gift of healing? You know, do, can I heal people? I'm not convinced that it's localized around a person. I think that's actually a call for us today to pray for healing. But Jesus touched people. In other words, he did more than just talk. James speaks about this. It doesn't do us any good to go, hey, Jesus loves you and not actually love them. So Jesus sends them out to say, preach and heal. Preach and love. Preach and feed. doesn't do anyone good to have warm socks and a full belly if you haven't told them the Gospel. And it doesn't do anyone any good if you tell them the Gospel and they got cold feet and empty bellies. So we touch too. That's the way of Jesus. And some of us are better one than the other. Close it out. Jesus says, how to do mission, right? It says, give without receiving payment. Disciples are explicitly warned not to make money even slightly a goal of mission. This is not necessarily condemnation on you, but I will say, when you go on mission, go for a good God, not for the good things you might get. Period. I could go off about how pastors um, have become commercialized and now are doing ministry to make money though they never admit that, it's overtly out there and completely disgusting. And I think Jesus warns about it very clearly here to say, look, my mission is not good. I'm not happy when it's colored in green. I think at some level we have to be careful making mission and church too impressive, too professional. Too out there. And people say, well, you got to reach the culture. And you got to be like, yeah, okay, whatever. But I don't want to get questioned about whether we're really about Jesus or not to the extent where I have to put up a sign. Jesus says, look, when you go out, you're going for me. Don't worry about what you're going to get. So whether you're going out and preaching to a friend, whether you're leading a Bible study, whether you're leading a road group, whether you're doing some kind of ministry in some other place, going to a food bank feeding, you make sure you're doing it for the glory of God. Because if you're not, you'll show up to that Bible study, and only two people show up, and you'll think this isn't worth it. And I'll ask you, why are we doing it to begin with? For the glory of God, not for the good things He may or may not give you as a result, or that you might get from people. Be modest, be simple, be generous, don't seek to profit, period. Last couple, with whom do we do mission? This should be a comfort to you as well. He says, he says, go to the towns and find the person who's worthy. Which sounds kind of weird. But here's what I believe worthy means in this context. It really just means receptive. So when you go and you share Jesus, share Him with people who are ready to listen. People who may already be asking the questions that you ask them. Do you want to know about Jesus? doesn't mean you never get into a debate or an argument but it does mean that it's a lot easier to go with people who want to hear it and find them. And I think it's also the idea of asking yourselves who you already have relationship with that is good. Who at work? Who in your neighborhood? Who in your friends do you already have awesome relationship with and you just want to introduce them to Jesus? You're just the mailman, right? You don't save anybody. God saves. So, why not be the mailman to people either already on your delivery route? Who's on your delivery route, right? 
Those people who are receptive, you'd be surprised how many people want to talk about it that you already know. That always want to hear about Jesus and that may actually say, I was hoping someone would say something. I was, I've been asking myself these questions. Don't look for the most impressive opportunity or the, or the biggest challenge. Look for the most receptive one. The closest one. Where are dar- doors already open? Period. Where are the doors swinging so wide open that all you got to do is open your mouth and say the name Jesus and they'll be like, yes, I believe. And you'll be like, good. There you go. But then there will be those who don't receive. And this is the last thing he says. Not everyone's going to receive what you say, he tells them. You're going to go in and some will reject you. And the point is, relax. You're not the judge. You're not the Savior. You're the mailman. They don't want your mail? That's fine. Leave it on the front porch and walk away. It's okay. I think we get to this place where we feel guilty because we haven't put enough time in or guilty because we haven't said the right things. We're like, man, I just, oh, just got to keep going. I keep going. I keep going. It's like, you know what? Um, I don't want to say stop wasting your time, but stop wasting your time. It's okay. Jesus gives us permission to leave those who reject us. Not abandon them, but maybe stop spending so much time on the weeds and look in the field. It doesn't mean you don't hope. doesn't mean you don't love. doesn't mean you don't pray for them. But it does mean you release them and you trust them to Jesus and not put so much onus on yourself. Shake the dust off your feet. Right? Stop arguing. Stop lecturing. Stop pleading. And remember the eternal perspective, which is what? God is the judge, not you. God saves, not you. They are not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. Jesus got them. And if Jesus wants to save them, He will relax. Enjoy mission. It's a harvest, right? It's like, Let's see what happens. Jesus. Boom! The guy wants to hear about it. Sweet! The harvest is ready. It's out there. It's just a matter of us sharing with the right people. Okay, let's go. And if they reject, if they say, oh, I don't believe that. Like, okay, I love you. Jesus loves you. Brings us a comfort. So in conclusion, Jesus tells us, look, I came to make disciples. And I wanted to make disciples to do the mission my way. This is His way. It's very clear. The first thing we need to do is to pray. Some of us have not prayed for mission. You have not prayed for conversion. You have not prayed for salvation for anybody. You have not prayed for people to be sent out into the field. You have not prayed for more leaders. You have not prayed for more pastors, more planners, more churches. Nothing. So you need to pray. That's number one. But that's just the beginning. That's not the end. It's interesting that Jesus says, tell them to pray, but not for men to replace them. He's like, no, that's the first thing you do, now you go. Martin Luther had a friend who felt about the Christian faith that he did. Martin Luther was a great reformer. His friend was also a monk. So they came to an agreement that Luther would go down to the dust and heat of the battle 
taking the Reformation into the world, and the friend would stay in the monastery and hold or uphold Luther's kind of efforts in prayer. And so they began that way. Luther went out, made a lot of noise, made a lot of enemies, made a lot of believers. And this man went down into his monastery and he prayed that Luther's work would be fruitful. He prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. And then one night, that friend had a dream. And he saw a vast field of corn as big as the world, and one solitary man was trying to reap it. And the man turned and hit the face of Martin Luther. So the man stopped praying and he said, I must now leave my prayers and get to work. And so he left the comfort of that monastic solitude and he got into the battlefield. So there are only two types of people here. One type, some of you need to be converted to Jesus. Some of you are finding your faith in a Savior that is not going to satisfy. Some of you need to believe in Jesus Christ and entrust that He is your Lord, that He is your Savior, that He forgives you, that He loves you. Some of you need to lay down your life and let Him be Lord. To believe in His death in your place for your sins. To believe in His resurrection for your new life. Freely received if you will just confess your belief in that. The other of you need to be converted to mission. To be reminded that you are a sent people. I don't know where you're sent to, but the church is here to equip you to fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. Some of you, maybe you're just called right now to be those people who pray. Others are called to lead in different ways. Others are called to be elders here or elders in other churches. Others are going to plant churches. Jim Ficker planted communion church and never thought he'd ever plant a church. I don't know who's here, but I'm committed to pray, I'm committed to equipping, and definitely committed to sending, which sometimes amounts to me kicking you out the door so you can get in the field. But right now, you have a field. A harvest that is ready in the field you're at, whether it be at work, at home, where you recreate, in your neighborhood, wherever. You need to begin to look with the eyes of Jesus and see the people as in need and broken past the sinfulness, past the irritants, past the awkwardness, and just preach to them. Love them. Get close to them. Share with them. Begin to see your whole life as a mission that every aspect you are sent into, empowered by the authority of Christ who is the ruler of all things. And the power is not in your perfect articulation of the Gospel. The power is in you claiming Jesus' name and sharing Jesus' love with this person. And you're going to be blown away by what happens. You just ask some simple questions. Do you know Jesus? Do you want to know Him? The first thing Jesus wants to do is to pray, but it's not the last thing. And we'll close in prayer reminding us this. The Great Commission is not a suggestion. It's a command. It's a command.
If we're not willing to be a sent people, we're not willing to obey Christ. And He died to make us not only willing, but able. And let's live in that. Let's pray. Father God, we come before Your throne.